Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. And from the Now Hall Auditorium at the University of Virginia, this is Democracy in Danger. Well, we're back in the classroom this time and taping live in front of our students again. Yeah, it's good to be with all of you again. And so far this season, podcasting from this class has not occasioned another insurrection as it seemed to do in 2021. Yeah, no, it hasn't. Of course, the last time we recorded here in the classroom, we were talking about abortion and democracy. And then a judge in Texas tried to remove the abortion pill mifepristone from the market, although the Supreme Court has halted that ruling for now. Well, of course, we like to be on the cutting edge here at Democracy in Danger. And that's one of the reasons we've invited a scholar to our class today to talk about another topic in the news, and that's Twitter. As we all know, the platform is going through a lot of changes. Some might say it's going through a meltdown of sorts. And yet, you know, it's easy to be cynical about social media. We all have perhaps a jaded view of it, but Twitter has played a huge role in our democracy, in some cases giving voice to a lot of toxic commentary and hatred, but in others amplifying the views of people who, whose voices might not otherwise have been heard. Yeah, so today we want to explore the intersection of social media, racial justice, and democracy. And we have just the right person to help us do that. Meredith D. Clark is visiting with us from Northeastern University's School of Journalism. She is an associate professor there and the founding director of the Center for Communication, Media Innovation, and Social Change. Meredith is a former colleague of ours here at UVA, and she has written widely about digital media and activism. Meredith, welcome to Democracy in Danger, and welcome back to UVA. Thank you so much for having me. Well, so Meredith, you've made your mark as a scholar by studying social media, Twitter in particular, and more specifically, Black Twitter. What is Black Twitter? When was Black Twitter? Is there still Black Twitter? And why did you decide to write about it? Like, what, what drew you into it as your scholarly focus? Well, this goes back to my career in the newsroom as a journalist. So in 2010, before I left for UNC Chapel Hill, where I pursued my PhD, I read this story that was published in Slate called How Black People Use Twitter. And having been trained as a copy editor, I was instantly sort of curious because you're basically saying in this headline, this is how all black people use Twitter. I thought that was very interesting. I am a black person, not sure that I use it in the same way it's being described in this article. Mm -hmm. So I decided to pursue it. And at that time, no one was really extensively writing about black Twitter. In fact, the first set of articles and my dissertation all came out within about a year of one another. So my question was, what is black Twitter? And I found it's this culturally linked network of communicators who are using the platform to talk about issues of concern to black communities communities, and then how does it work? And that is the process of Black digital resistance that I've further defined through my scholarship. Okay, can you go deeper on that? Black digital resistance. Absolutely. It's a process of identifying, so self-identifying as a Black person. Um, you know, there's a New Yorker comic that says no one on the internet knows you're a dog, right? right? right. <laughs> and no one on the internet knows that you are raced in a particular way. They don't know what your gender or gender identity is. So mm -hmm. it was significant to me that people were choosing to show up as Black online. When you could participate in racial tourism, you could basically be anyone or anything. Mm -hmm. So that's the first point, this positive self-identity 
self-identification as a black person. Mm -hmm. uh, then self-selecting into conversations that were of interest to other black communities. So what I would see is a news story would come out and people would comment it and they talk about black experiences around a specific topic. Mm -hmm. And that led to the next stage, which was participation and using a particular hashtag or a particular phrase that was trending on Twitter to sort of signal that you were part of this conversation and part of this group. Then you had affirmation where people were affirming one another and what they were saying. And that doesn't necessarily mean they agree with one another, but it means that you know you're not speaking out into the void. So you would get added, as we say. Uh, someone would speak directly to you and at your Twitter account. They might retweet you, quote tweet you, and add on to what you were talking about. Um, and then we had reaffirmation, which is the evidence that these online conversations were having some sort of offline impact. And mm -hmm. one of the ways that I point that out to people is that those of you who've ever seen Black Lives Matter on a shirt or on a sign, you know that this online conversation is having an effect somewhere else because you're seeing an artifact of it in an offline space. And then that final stage is vindication. And vindication is the fulfillment of an objective that is really loosely defined by the networks. So in some cases, vindication might be what you saw with the American Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences adding uh, more members and more members from underrepresented backgrounds to its numbers, to even things like policy changes, language changes, stuff like R. Kelly finally being prosecuted and sent to jail for his crimes against young women and girls. Mm -hmm. All of these things arguably are a form of vindication. So Black Twitter has had a cascading effect, perhaps you could say it in some ways. Um, you've also written about white people using the hashtag Black Lives Matter and talked about white folks' work and allyship and so forth. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about those terms and, and, and how they work and how they fit into your analysis of this ecosystem? So we know that Black Lives Matter as a hashtag and as a movement was started by Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tometi. And I wanted to know more about what it was like for people to use this hashtag online as part of conversation and also to take it offline and be able to talk to the people in their personal networks. When I put out a call for people to tell me about their experiences with the hashtag, my first, I want to say, 20 or so responses were all from white users. Mm. And I was like, well, this is pretty interesting because this isn't what I necessarily expected. And what I learned was that people were either seeking the hashtag to learn more about what was going on, so the origins of Black Lives Matter, uh, what it actually meant in terms of being a slogan, but what does it signal? What are the objectives of this movement? And then also they were looking for educational resources so that when they had conversations with family and friends, you know, when the argument came up over the Thanksgiving dinner table, they had something that they could draw from to discuss what they were learning in this setting. We, you know, you know that uh, we've both been studying social media platforms in various ways for more than a decade now. And it's kind of crazy to try to write a book about something that moves so fast. And I've enjoyed watching the trash fire that is Twitter for the last <laughs> year. I don't know if you've gotten any sort of perverse joy out of it. I know it's your research subject, so it must also frighten you that this collection of human behavior and expression 
might not last, right? It might, mm -hmm. even if it does last, could be extremely different. It's already different. Mm -hmm. So given what we've seen Twitter go through while we've watched a billionaire blow billions of dollars of his own money, uh, you know, what, what is your plan for making sense of this moment in history, this pretty remarkable decade? Well, I tell you, when I realized that I was going to write a book about it, the first sentence that I wrote for chapter one says that by the time you read this book, Twitter may be no more. Mm -hmm. And I had to start with this idea that I was going to be writing from almost a historical perspective mm. because I recognize that 20 years from now, I'll be talking about Twitter and my niece who is 11 and my nephew who's two will have no idea what I'm talking about. It'll be like me talking about a cassette tape, right? Or a Betamax or uh, something. A cassette tape was <laughs> a piece of plastic with magnetic tape inside rolled in a spool. Go on. Right, right. So it'll, it'll be talking about those kind of technologies. But what is important to me is not so much the technology or the platform, mm -hmm. but what people did with it. Mm -hmm. How people were able to create online communities from it and how they were able to exchange information. And so I situate Twitter and Black Twitter in specific in this longer history of people, marginalized folks, using the communication technologies available to them Good. to meet the goals that they have. So going all the way back to basic storytelling. You know, we're sitting around the campfire and all we've got to do at night before we turn in is tell stories. That connection is still there. And so that is how I approach that. Now, it's absolutely maddening. I will tell you that I was basically finished with my book last year when Elon Musk came oh. out and said, you know, I think I'm going to buy this thing. And I called <laughs> it back and said, you know, I can't send this out into the world without some sort of update about what has happened. I didn't realize that I was going to have the significant revisions yeah. that I have. Oh, but man. He's so cruel to scholars. But some of the major things that changed were I added a, a layer in each chapter about specifically how Black Twitter fits in as this answer to marginalization in mainstream media. And that was always there, but now it's much longer. And I have a few more cases that sort of illustrate, you know, this is the narrative that you get about Black communities from mainstream media. This is the narrative that Black Twitter created. And here's why that's important. And then towards the end, I have a coda um, that is really directed towards researchers and other people who are interested in working in these ephemeral spaces and with this data that can be erased with a single keystroke. One of my techniques for preserving some of my data, very, very low tech, but it is the screenshot. Mm -hmm. And the screenshots are the thing that last because Musk came in and he said, you know, all of these APIs that you all have connected, all of these uh, advanced program interfaces that you have connected to this platform, we're going to render them non-functional. And now if you've been collecting data in that way, it's gone, but I've still got my screenshots. And so it's sort of a teaching tool that can be used in methods classes and for folks who are thinking about working with data like this, some of the very low tech ways that you can do that. Yeah, see, but you're you're making a, an archive, right, of, of Black yes. Twitter. So tell us about that. Yes. So as part of this larger project called Archiving the Black Web, which is uh, sponsored by the Mellon Foundation, 
I am working with a group of archivists to think about what are the coordinates of time and space that we want to remember as significant. Like if you were to travel to this time and space, what would you get from the experience of being here? And how can we recreate this for people who are not going to be able to experience it in the same way? So when Elon Musk made this announcement about buying the platform, a lot of people started saying, you know, download your data, get your data. And then you've got it and you can see how many thousands of tweets that you spent describing what mm. you have for lunch. Lunch. Right. So the aim of this project is to help people sift through that and make sense of what's going to be important for them to preserve, but also what is going to be important for groups of people in communities of practice or just in friendship circles, what have you, to put together so that they can remember what was, or they might be able to build off of what they made at that time. And we are just really excited to see what we can do in terms of recreating the experience for future generations. So, uh, you know, you've also spent uh, a good part of your career trying to make sense of uh, the entire media ecosystem mm -hmm. and, and mainstream media or more established commercial media and social media and, and all of these voices from below coming up. Uh, and in that process, you have been very clear about your critical position on mainstream media. You've written, if there's any American institution that must pay reparations, mm -hmm. it's journalism. Mm -hmm. And this sort of flips things, right? We're used to hearing about brave journalists marching through the civil rights era South and, and risking their lives to make an account of the Freedom Riders or, or you know, or the, the lunch counter sit-in. So tell us the story of the role of American journalism in extending and maintaining racism. And what do you mean by reparations and mm -hmm. reparative journalism? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I go back to is this saying that journalists have. They say that journalism is the first draft of history. Mm -hmm. And I point out that if the only people who could have contributed to the development of journalism as a practice and its professionalization as we know it, were people who were from white, wealthy, property-owning families because they were the only ones who could go to college or the only ones who were actually legally allowed to read or mm -hmm. pursue higher education for decades, if not hundreds of years, depending on what group you're talking about, then what you have is not the first draft of history, but the first draft of historical fiction. Mm because you have left out so many perspectives on the narrative. You have left out so many pieces of the narrative. We have this argument in journalism that journalists are supposed to be objective. And I say that that is patently impossible so the assumption is false. Right. Are you able to relay the facts and be as fair as possible? Are you able to try and reach for the strongest balance as possible? Yes, but you cannot tell a story without filtering it through the perspective that you have developed as a result of having the life that you have had. Mm. And I think we need to be honest about that. I honestly say that that is a criticism that we have that now has contributed to this idea that mainstream media is untrustworthy. Mm -hmm. Because yes, if you're operating and saying that you are able to be an objective observer on its face, 
that's a lie. Mm. You're not able to do that. I go through the structures of journalism and point out some of the places where we see some of the failures. So the Kerner Commission report published in 1978, 10 years after the civil uh, disorders in cities across the country pointed out that one of the reasons these disorders, these riots, if you will, took place was because America did not have an accurate picture of what life was like specifically for Black Americans. And part of that problem was because Black Americans were not being hired into mainstream media. And so, well, then American Society of News Editors came up with this idea of trying to achieve racial parity within geographic regions where newspapers were based. So if you had a newspaper that was in a city that was 20% Black, then 20% of your editorial staff should be Black. That was their goal by the year 2000. By 1996, they knew that they weren't going to make it. And so they ran it back and said, well, we'll do it for like five, 10 years later. They didn't make it. They still haven't made it. And of course, with the fracturing of the media environment, they're not going to make it. That also wasn't the greatest goal because quotas don't necessarily mean that you're going to get diversity of perspective. So that's another thing that I point to. I point to something like the Associated Press style book, which did not add an entry for racist until 2019. So this is the journalist's Bible, the way that we talk about it colloquially. If you want to know how to write for news, you consult the Associated Press style book. And up until 2019, according to the Associated Press style book, you couldn't necessarily call something racist. Mm. So that leaves a lot of room for sort of the ridiculous phrasing that we've seen right. in recent years. It still has years. taken a lot of time yeah. for news Racial to use that term. undertone. Yeah. Racially you know, charged. Racially charged. charged. That was yeah. the great euphemism. Like call a thing a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so going back and, and making these arguments helps us to see how journalism hasn't fulfilled even its promise. And so I have said, and my thinking has evolved on this a bit, I said in the essay about uh, reparative journalism, my essay for Neiman Lab, but I said pay reparations. And what my thinking has evolved to is to make reparations, Mm. because this isn't solely a financial argument. This is a matter of changing practices, of changing norms, of changing values in order to help journalism evolve to get closer to fulfilling its proclaimed purpose. Let me just uh, widen from the from sort of diversity of newsrooms and media to diversity as a social goal. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you've spent a lot of time in universities and you know that um, programs of, around diversity, equity and inclusion um, have been successful and there has been a significant backlash across the country. There is, in mm-hmm. fact, a backlash going on right here right at now. the University of Virginia. What is this criticism, this backlash about? Um, how should we understand it uh, in the life of universities, but also in the, in the life of the public square that you have studied? It's a, it's a thorny question. I think ultimately what this is about is a, it's about power. I say I study race, media, and power pretty broadly. And when you think about admissions to college, or you think about who the composition of the faculty is, or you think about what ideas are able to be heard, who gets to speak, what have you, these are all issues of power. And unfortunately, what has been done in higher ed is rather than 
um, very critically confront what we mean by diversity, equity, and inclusion, and why we use that specific language. Mm -hmm. We've just kind of said, well, we know that there are these groups of people who have been left out of these processes. We know that because of the legacies of chattel slavery, of redlining, of Jim Crow, of Japanese internment, attempts at indigenous genocide, all of these things, we know that there are groups of people who have not had the same sort of access and opportunity, but we don't want to address these structural factors. Mm. So we will address these things that it's a little bit easier for us to get our hands on. And we'll do that in terms of student recruitment, faculty recruitment, and developing programming that makes everyone feel better about at least having the conversation. And because we have engaged in this program of work, rather than addressing some of those root causes and really confronting history, mm -hmm. it's become very easy to attack these superficial sort of attempts to adjust what I call America's very broken foundation. I don't think that the foundation of this country can be fixed. But sometimes you have to work with a broken foundation and you have to balance and address and build on what you have. And I think that is the opportunity that we have. Think about the first reconstruction coming after the Civil War, the second reconstruction, which a number of historians are now using to refer to the civil rights movement and all of the advances that were made within the first 10 to 50 years of each of these eras um, being trampled out in one way or another because we did not allow those to grow and we did not allow the progress that we were making to continue, mm -hmm. we have to keep going back to, well, let's do the superficial thing. And that is the easiest thing to get rid of. It is the easiest thing to attack. Mm -hmm. If your approaches to diversity are quota-based, if they are about simple statements, rather than actual reform and creating new ways of thinking about the world and new ways of building the world that you're trying to achieve, then it's a really easy to get rid of those. Right, especially when you institutionalize it and create a target. Exactly. Which is exactly what's happening. Well, and just last night, I had to do my annual diversity training online mandated by the university. And, you know, I just don't see how this is an effective tool. This is not teaching me something. It's not engaging me. It's not asking me to solve a problem. I just click on slides as they go right. past. I mean, so, well, we have uh, we have time for questions, folks, and I really want to get you guys into the uh, into the conversation. Uh, so let's go to the audience and take our first question. Make sure to tell us your first name and your hometown. Cool. Hi, my name is Tram and I'm from Houston, Texas, fellow Black Twitter user. You've touched on this a little bit before, but since his must take over, he has considered himself a freedom of speech advocate, mm -hmm. but we've seen a rise in hate speech and um, a dissent in left or left of center speech. Would you say this change in leadership and ecosystem and a rise of hate speech has affected the way people go about promoting social change, especially in um, black spaces? Hmm. That's a good question. So first, I want to go back to Elon Musk's declaration about his upholding the ideals of freedom of speech. And this is where I really get into my college professor bag because <laughs> I'm like, um, freedom of speech means the freedom to not have the government interfere in your First Amendment rights, the five freedoms that you have, including the freedom of speech. There is no such thing as freedom of speech on a privately owned platform. There is the permissible speech there is silencing, but there is not censoring. Mm -hmm. 
There were some interventions, but if you talk to anyone who is in a marginalized group, for instance, if you talk to trans women on the platform, they will tell you that what was there before was still insufficient. And the reason that they continue to use the platform is because the gratification that they are receiving, be that community, be it an opportunity to make money, be it just connection, outweighed the risk of having these harmful interactions with other people. So I think that to the extent that people are not willing to put up with the level of abuse that has been sort of unleashed by rolling back some of those protections, yes, you've lost something in terms of the potential engagement for racial justice, for social justice purposes. But then I also recognize that there are plenty of people both in this country and more widely throughout the world who are still going to come to this platform because it is one of the only ways that their voices can be amplified uh, without facing the same sort of punishments or uh, retribution that they might face if they were to speak out in other ways wherever they are. I especially think about those people in countries that don't have the same First Amendment protections that we do that rely on this platform to get their messages out. So Meredith, if there were to be a galvanizing event of the sort we saw in Ferguson, mm -hmm. the sort of event that kicks off that level of passion and demand and activism, mm -hmm. what avenues, what tools would people best use right now? Mm -hmm. I mean, is Twitter out of the game for that? Is it still the best option for them? What do you think? I think that you are now seeing an era where while Twitter was the primary destination for people who wanted to get information out in real time about uh, high profile situations, you have now seen a divergence into other platforms. Mm. And also, since people spent and invested so much time on Twitter and were able to build audiences, they've been able to direct those audiences into other places. So now I'm looking at this as an ecosystem where this is where the call may go out, but it's going to be amplified mm. on other an platforms. Echo, right? You're going to see it, huh. yes. Okay, interesting. We have another question from Ruby, it looks like. Ruby, welcome to the show. Hi. So in the summer of 2020, when the Black Lives Matter protests became widespread across the U.S., um, there was lots of Instagram posts of things like black squares in like um, Instagram profile pictures, um, Instagram bios saying BLM and endless posting of different infographics. Do you see there being substantial value in these kind of posts or are they purely performative? Mm. I'd say a little bit of both. So first, I recognize that doing something like posting a black square on so-called Blackout Tuesday, which had a, a totally different meaning five years prior, doesn't necessarily have the impact that people think it does. And that's a function of how the platform works. It says, oh, this is important. I'm gonna show you more pictures of black squares. Instead of showing you timely information about where people were assembling, who needed what sort of assistance, what mm. sort of education was going out, insightful information that you could use. All you saw was black squares. I do think, however, that there is some use to people using the platform to signal where they stand on the issues. Mm 
what it does is allow people to find each other mm -hmm. and find information that is of use to them. And I think that is probably the highest and best use of the platform. If all you are doing though is posting on these networks and you're not enacting any of the things that you're learning, you're not uh, revisiting any of your own beliefs, you're not educating someone else, you're not giving to any of these causes, you're not getting out and marching, then yes, I think it is pretty performative to do that without any additional action. We have time for one more question from our students. Hi, I'm Chloe, a second year history major from Lancaster County, Virginia. Um, as you mentioned, within the study of history, marginalized voices and stories are often much more difficult to access because they were not seen as worthy of preservation by the powers of the majority. Now, as you are choosing to preserve the black digital stories which you study, which the preservation of is especially important and difficult, what are you choosing to preserve for history and why? That is an amazing question. So what am I choosing to preserve for history? This answer is two parts. So I work with folks that I call collaborators. They are the people that I have interviewed, the people who have allowed me to follow them online and see what they're doing. They're going to be the people who determine what gets preserved from my portion of the project. I'm also recruiting people, um, whether you know, you're just a regular person and you want to learn more about doing digital archiving, or if you're someone who has a project that needs resources and financial support, uh, depending on where you fall in either of those groups, those people are getting to determine what they want to preserve. From my perspective, I am prioritizing moments of black joy that didn't necessarily make the news, mm. but spoke to the ethos of the time in which they were created. So one of the ones that I'm going back to, um, and there's actually a student, a PhD candidate rather, at the University of Missouri, Tiffany Jones, who is working on this, Club Quarantine, which was actually on Instagram, where DJ Nice got on um, in the early months of lockdown and would DJ sets. Everyone would be in the comments on those sets. Like Oprah was in the comments, Michelle Obama was in the comments. Me and my homegirls, we were in the comments. And I want to preserve memories of that kind of joy when we really did not have anything to be joyful about. And I think that would very easily be lost to history when you can look at the millions of lives that were lost or how society was completely rewritten in terms of how we engage or how we should engage. It would be very easy to lose sight of a moment of joy like that. I'm also considering things like um, Yahoo News, and be really quick, typed a headline that Trump wants a bigger Navy, and this was during the Trump administration. But the B key and the N key are right next to each other on the keyboard. And somebody hit the wrong key. And Black Twitter had a field day. So basically, Trump wants an N-word Navy. And Black people said, what does a Navy like that look like? And came up with all kinds of jokes. It's something that said the Black people don't take anything seriously. Hilarious jokes, one of the best days on Twitter. I want to make sure that's preserved. Well. Meredith Clark, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in Danger. Thank you. Meredith D. Clark is the founding director of the Center for Communication, Media Innovation, and Social Change at Northeastern University. 
Previously, she worked for newspapers in Florida, Texas, and North Carolina. Her forthcoming book is titled, We Tried to Tell Y'all, Black Twitter and Black Digital Resistance. That does it for this episode. Coming up next time, a conversation with New York Times columnist Jamel Bowie. If you think that American policing has to be reformed, it's not training, it's not bias, it's how actually do you bring police departments back under democratic control, or if they never really existed there, how do you impose that? In the meantime, we have some big news to share. The show was honored last week with a Webby People's Voice Award. If you voted for us, and even if you didn't, we owe you one. I'm not sure what that means, but that's what's in the script. Right. <laughs> and yeah, we are also on Twitter at DND Podcast. That's D-I-N-D Podcast. Please stay in touch and subscribe to the show and leave us some stars on your favorite podcast app. It's the best way to help us reach new listeners. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengall and Rebecca Barry. Ellie Bashkow engineers the show. Our interns are Ava Kretzinger-Walters, Ellis Nolan, and B. Webster. Support comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Karsh Institute of Democracy. We belong to the Democracy Group Podcast Network, and we're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Vadianathan. And I'm Will Hitchcock. Until next time.